All God's people said, wow. Is that what we need to say? Just wow. <clears throat> My goodness, thank you so much for leading us in worship today. Well, <clears throat> those of you that have been a part of our journey here at First Baptist Arlington this year know that our theme for 2023 is why does it matter? And we are spending an entire year exploring the answer to that question. And we're actually looking at different facets of why anything matters. And I'm looking forward to the rest of this year. And basically what we're doing is we are developing our apologetics muscles. Well, what that means is we're, we're learning better how to give an articulate, reasonable explanation of our faith and do it in a way that is compelling and appealing to others. That's really what apologetics is. That word comes from a Greek word in the New Testament, apologia, which literally means to defend. And so we are learning together how to defend, if you will, how to express our faith. And that's really what this year is about. And so on Sunday mornings, we gather around these various themes during the week, we offer you opportunity to explore the conversation a little more deeply. And so we have a podcast every week called Tell Me More. And wherever you get your podcast, you can find it. Katie Hodges, our Minister of Congregational Life, Luke Stair, who leads community engagement at our church, and I. We have a deeper conversation about the topic we've addressed on Sunday morning. And, and so I invite you to listen to that as well as we're just exploring together why anything matters. We're going to turn the page today. We'll finish this series, and we start a new series next Sunday morning. Family, why does it matter? You know, there are a lot of pressures on families today. A lot of questions about families, and what is a family? What does the Bible teach us about family? And so we're going to explore that together, and we're going to look at all the different expressions of families. Families come in all shapes and sizes. There are single adults, married adults, widows, widowers, people who are divorced, blended families. Families just come in so many different expressions today. And so in that series, we're going to just learn together more about family. We're going to actually use some old TV shows to help us learn truths about families. Actually, we're going to use the Bible. That's really what we're going to use but we're going to let some of these old TV families be illustrative of what we're learning about families, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that series with you. But with that said, let's bring this conversation to a conclusion today. Our theme for Easter has been your story. Why does it matter? And we've been reminded of the power of story. At its essence, that's what the gospel is. It's a story. The word gospel means good news. It's news. It's something that we share with others. So with that said, I want us to look at this text today. I've entitled the message today very creatively. It's original to me. He is risen. I knew you'd be impressed by that. Um, but sometimes something very simple expresses something incredibly profound. And indeed, that statement, he is risen, does just that. Our text is found on the 20th page of John's gospel. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, I'll invite you to John 20. 
We're not going to read the entire text. We'll, we'll read some excerpts from it. So I want us to look at verse 1. It's our custom at our church to stand and honor the Lord Jesus when the gospel is read. So I invite you to stand with me if you're able. We'll begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Then there's this fascinating story of Mary Magdalene actually seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. And once she understands what she's seen and the fact that she's met with him, you look at verse 18, she goes back to the disciples and tells them, I've seen the Lord. And then verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. After this, after he'd said this, he showed them his hands inside the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And then we come to the summary, if you will, of John's gospel. And it's found in verse 30, where John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we're again this morning with this question, Easter, why does it matter? Do you know that uh, today, a little over one-third of the world's population some 2.7 billion people will celebrate Easter. There are some 2.7 billion Christians, about a third of the global population in our world, that every year celebrate Easter. The word Easter is a little bit challenging for some because when you look it up on the internet, you'll hear a theory that goes something like this. There are those who like to believe that Christians baptized pagan holidays. That's kind of what we did historically. And uh, many of you know my PhDs in church history. I've spent a lot of time studying the history of Christianity. And there's this theory that there was this God in, in Great Britain in the early centuries after Christ known as Easter, O-E-S-T-R-E, -E, and that somehow the worship of that God or goddess eventually morphed into Easter. The only problem with that is it's just not historically documented. Um, it's a mention by the Venerable Beattie. He was a British monk in the 8th century who was trying to reconcile the date of Easter for the church. And he just has this offhand comment about that. 
And so ever since then, people say, well, that's what Easter is. That's where the word came from. The problem with that is there's just no documentation anywhere that there ever was a god or a goddess worshiped in Britain named Easter. We've never been able to find that. It's remarkable how things make it into Wikipedia, but nevertheless, um, so we know the word just means east, and it's associated with spring, with the lengthening of days. It eventually gets connected to the Resurrection Sunday that Christians celebrate. But when you look at Christianity across the world, Easter and Christmas, those are the two largest religious celebrations in the history of the world. More people on planet Earth celebrate those two religious holidays than any other religious, religious holiday in history. And so, obviously, this is a big deal, Easter Sunday. Well, what is the big deal about Easter? Why, why does it matter? Well, what I'd like to do this morning is at least try to help us begin to answer that question. And I want you to think about it like this with me. If you're a Christian in this room, I would ask you this question. How well can you represent Jesus to your world? How well can you explain to someone and articulate to someone who Jesus really is? How much do you know about Jesus? So this morning, I want us to look at that together since we're developing our apologetic mus muscles. So why is Easter such a big deal? Well, let me just put it to you like this because this is what John teaches us. We've been reading John's gospel. Jesus Christ is the most important person to live on earth. Bar none. Billions of people have populated this earth. None of them like Jesus. John has written this gospel, this story, this account of Jesus to communicate that truth to you. He is testifying to the truth that Jesus is the most important person who's ever lived. John wrote this gospel at the end of the first century, around A.D. 90 or so. It had been some 60 years since Jesus had been crucified and resurrected from the dead. John was one of his followers. So he had had years to reflect on this truth and this story. Compiling information. Remembering his own eyewitness accounts. And here's what he chose to do. He chose to write this book that we know as John. And he wrote it to, to the audience of his day. He wrote it to Jewish believers and Gentile Roman believers. He wrote it to Jewish non-believers hoping to show them that Jesus is the Messiah so they would convert to Christianity. He wrote it to non-Christian Romans, Gentiles, to help them understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world so they might convert to Christianity also. So his audience was to Jews and Gentiles, Romans, Christians, and non-Christians. And his goal is to help everyone understand who Jesus is. Now, John lived in a certain context. And in the context of John's day, you have both the Greco-Roman influence and the Jew, and Jewish influence, Greek and Roman and Jewish. And so there were theological considerations, there were cultural considerations. For example, the Romans were infatuated with creation, with the universe, with how it worked. They were scientific in their orientation, much like the Greeks. 
They wanted explanation for the reality of everything that existed. The Romans were also infatuated with power, with their ability to rule the world in a way that no one else had ever done. The Jews were also infatuated with creation as they looked at all that is. Both Jews and Romans and Greeks and ancient people, they would look at the stars and the planets and the constellations and they would contemplate just the massive enormity of the universe and come up with explanations about it. The Jews taught that the God of Israel was behind it all, that he had created everything that is. The Jews also were uh, committed to the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Sabbath. They marked their week by the Sabbath. The temple in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. The temple was the, it was the representation of God on planet Earth. That's where you met God, if you will. The Jews also loved their stories. And so when Jesus was alive, these Jewish moms were training their children at home. And as they were rearing their children, they told them the great stories of creation, of Abraham, of Moses, Elijah, Elisha. You see, these Jewish moms, they didn't have the Brothers Grimm. They didn't have fairy tales. Harry Potter hadn't even been written yet, so they didn't have that story. They didn't have Marvel comics. Guess what they had? Their stories. And these were their heroes. And their children learned these stories. They were woven into the psyche, if you will, of what it meant to be a Jew. So guess what John does? John takes on all of that in his gospel. And he is writing to this broad audience to demonstrate to everybody, whether you are Jew or Gentile Roman alike, Christian or non-Christian, John is communicating the truth that Jesus Christ is the most important person who has ever lived. So let me just show you quickly how he does that, if I may. Notice how he begins. The Romans were infatuated with creation. The Jews looked at creation as an expression of the glory of God. How does John begin his gospel? Do you remember? Here's what he says. In the beginning. So he's inviting everybody in because both Jews and Gentiles wanted to know what happened. What, where did all this come from? John says, well, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He then will tell us in verse 14 of chapter one, and the word became flesh and lived among us. He's talking about Jesus. But then he says this, through him, through the word, everything that was made was made by him. And without him, nothing was made. So John starts off and says, you want me to help you understand creation? Well, let me tell you the story of the Son of God, Jesus. Creation was made through him. So that's where he starts. And then he begins to address these legendary figures in Israel's history. Abraham. Abraham is the most famous Jew. He's called Father Abraham. Do you know that even today, three of the major world religions, that's what they call him. Jews call Abraham Father Abraham. Muslims call Abraham Father Abraham. Christians call Abraham Father Abraham. He's one of the most significant human beings who's ever lived. And so, John lets you know how Jesus compares to Abraham. John chapter 8. The Pharisees are talking to Jesus and they say something about Father Abraham. And he said, oh yeah, Father Abraham, he, he was longing to see my day. He was looking forward 
to when I came. And they were like, what are you talking about? You're only 30 years old. You're talking about Abraham? Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So dude, Abraham and Jesus. John says, <laughs> before Abraham even existed, the eternal son of God existed. And then Moses. Moses is this giant in the minds of the Hebrew people. He's the lawgiver. He's the one who was there when manna was provided in the wilderness. He was the one when the Jews were in the wilderness and they were thirsty. God told him to strike the rock and water came forth. As a matter of fact, they had their backs against the Red Sea and Moses lifted his staff and the Red Sea parted and the Jews, they made their way across the Red Sea on dry ground with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. So what about Moses? Well, what does John say about Jesus in John chapter one? He says, through Moses came the law. But through Jesus, grace and truth. And then you want to talk about manna? Moses being able to ask God to take care of the Jews? Well, Jesus one time was staring at 5,000 hungry men and all he had was five little pieces of bread. Y'all remember this story? Two little fish. And Jesus miraculously fed everybody there that day. Now, the Jews who read this story, they can't help but think about Moses and the manna in the wilderness. They can't help but think about Elijah because the Jews told the story of Elijah when Elijah was providing the food for the widow of Zarephath miraculously. Elisha, when Elisha encountered that woman who owed a debt, her husband died, and Elisha told her, you can take your oil and sell it and pay off the debt. And Well, she didn't have enough oil. He said, well, go get all the jars that you can and take the little bit of oil you have and just keep pouring in the jars. And she did. And she just kept pouring oil into every jar till finally she had enough to sell and pay off her debt. So the Jews knew these stories that these great heroes of the faith had provided for God's people in miraculous ways. And then John says, well, let me just tell you a little bit about Jesus. Jesus was there the day when everyone was hungry and they gave him a little bit of bread and he fed everybody there. And when they were all full, how many baskets were left over? Twelve, one for every tribe of Israel. And Jesus didn't have to part the Red Sea. He just walked on top of it. He walked across the Sea of Galilee and then Jesus, he told the woman at the well, he said, you come here every day and you get this water and you come back the next day and you get more water and you're just thirsty all the time. I'll tell you what, I'll give you something to drink. If you drink what I offer you, you'll never be thirsty again. In John 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem and there's this massive Jewish festival where at the end of the week-long time together celebration, the, the priests would come and bring these ceremonial pots of water and they would pour the water out on the ground. Now, if you know anything about people, people who live in an arid climate, the last thing you do with pure water is pour it on the ground. But the Jews did that to signify their faith that God would provide them water to drink. So after there's this massive ceremony and these priests have poured all this water on the ground, John tells us in John 7, Jesus steps up and says, y'all still thirsty? I want to give you water to drink. And Jesus said, the water that I will give you will be like a well inside of you and it will be a spring of water that will make its way all the way from the inside of your life and out. <clears throat> and the Sabbath, holy to the Jews. How did Jesus treat the Sabbath? Jesus told his followers and the Pharisees, God works on the Sabbath. Have you ever noticed the universe still works on the Sabbath? So God is still at work, and if I'm called upon to work on the Sabbath, I will. If I need to heal someone, I'll heal them because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And the temple, my goodness, the temple in Jerusalem? 
That was the holy place. And Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He said, you see this temple? I'll destroy it and rebuild it in three days. Nobody had ever talked like this. And the Romans? The Romans ruled the world. Well, you know, the Romans, had a, they had the embodiment of the rule of Rome in every region of the world. During Jesus' day, it was Pontius Pilate. He was the procurator, the governor. He represented everything Rome in Israel. And Jesus is standing before him, and Pilate finally says, are you going to defend yourself or not? Are you going to answer these questions or not? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how much power I have over you? And Jesus said, you don't have any power. Only a little bit of power you got what's been given to you, so be grateful for it. You have no power over me. My kingdom's not of this world. And so, again, and again, and again, John just takes on whatever you think is great, whatever you think is incredible, and he places Jesus right next to it to show you he's greater than that. He's greater than them. Now, I realize you and I don't live in that first century context. Not many of us are debating Romans. We're not dealing with the temple or the law per se, but you do live in a very rich and diverse religious and cultural context, you all do. You go to school with people from different faiths. You go to work with people from different faiths. You live in neighborhoods with people from all kinds of faith. And so in our world, there are people who've chosen to follow the teachings of Muhammad and the way of Islam. Or they've chosen the way of the Buddha and they live as Buddhists. Or those who follow the teachings of Confucius and they live in that world, or those who follow the teachings in the holy books of Hinduism. And here's what I would tell you. Jesus Christ is greater than all of them. Not a single one of those that I've mentioned ever made the claims that Jesus has made. Jesus is greater than all of them. He is the only one who talked like he talked. You know who Jesus is? Well, John will tell you who Jesus is because Jesus will say it himself. If you don't know who Jesus is, Jesus says, well, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God unless they come through me. That's Jesus. And that's why he could say before Abraham was, I am. And so no one compares to Jesus so why is Easter such a big deal? <laughs> well, because the death of Jesus Christ is the most important death in history. Do you know the Romans crucified over 40,000 people? So it wasn't necessarily the uniqueness of crucifixion as torturous as it was. But that's really not it. It's the fact that Jesus' death was different than any other death. His death is the most important death in history. His death was voluntary, sacrificial. He gave himself. Because you see, here's what the Bible teaches us as we look at this theologically, redemptively. The Bible teaches us the wages of sin is death. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us are under the sentence of death, every single one of us. All of us have rebelled against the ways of God. But not Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die on a cross. He died on the cross for us. And he offered himself up 
as a sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb, and his blood atoned for our sin. And that means it is now possible because he took our punishment, the punishment that you and I are supposed to uh, engage in and receive. He took it for us in our place so that you and I might receive forgiveness for our sin and we get forgiveness for our failures and we can be restored into a relationship with the God who designed us in the first place. So the death of Jesus was unlike any other death in the history of the world. But aren't you grateful? That's not the end of the story. Because you know why we're here this morning? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has changed everything. What is the big deal with Jesus being raised from the dead? <laughs> we have testimonies of other people who've been raised from the dead. But guess what? They all went on to die again. Even in the scripture, we have people who were raised from the dead. Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He died, yes. He did. He lived a perfect life and he died. And he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And yet, early on that first Easter Sunday morning, those women came to the tomb Worried about the body of Jesus. They, they believed his body wasn't properly prepared for burial. He had not been treated as he should be. And they decided they would take it upon themselves to go to that tomb and put their hands on the dead body of our Lord and anoint his body with spices and perfume for a proper burial. And when they arrived that morning, that stone had been rolled away and that angel said to them, why are you here? He is not here. He is risen from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead. And so I want you to think about it. To never die again. <laughs> That's the truth of the resurrection. That's the miracle of the resurrection. That's what marks this day. Jesus conquered sin on the cross, but we still had one more enemy. And that enemy is death. And on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus conquered death as well. That's why we can say with the Apostle Paul, oh grave, where's your victory now? Oh death, where's your sting? You see, we still die. Of course we do. We're human beings. We still die. And every time someone dies, it's a reminder to us of the curse, of the brokenness of our world, of the fact that there is sin in our world, and death is the ultimate consequence. We know that. We are reminded, but as Christians, here's what we know. Jesus conquered death on our behalf, and his resurrection is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of all believers. That's why our grief is tinged with hope. That's why every time we have a funeral as Christians, we grieve. We're sad. When we have people that we love that die, we're sad because we love them. But we also know that it's only a temporary victory. Because if you remember what the Bible teaches us, in the Garden of Eden, God told the serpent, yeah, you, you'll bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Yes, there's still going to be death, but he will crush your head one day. And so guess what? One day, whenever the Lord deems fit, he is going to return and every grave of every Christian will surrender its dead. Hallelujah, because we'll all be resurrected from the dead because the curse has been reversed and you and I receive that gift of eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, years ago, I was sitting in my office and someone from another faith 
was talking to me and he had just come to realize that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. And he said to me, he said, did you know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? I said, yes. He said, we should tell people this. <laughs> yes, we should. Because it's good news. So what's John's testimony? It's pretty simple. Believe in Jesus and live. That's it. Believe in Jesus and live. Because if you believe in Jesus, if you embrace him yourself personally, and you accept him for who he says he is, and as I said, you can read John's gospel for yourself if you want to know who he is. Once you do that, then oh my goodness, you're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're rescued from an empty life. You're, you're rescued from empty pursuits. You're, you're rescued from living your whole life as if your whole life was just about you. And you are redeemed from your sin. And you are saved from an eternal hell. And you are restored into a right relationship with God. And you now have the opportunity to live the purposeful life for which he designed you in the first place. And you now have a reservation in eternity waiting on you with your name on it kept by the power of God. Hallelujah. So John said, I've written all this so that you might believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. And by believing in him, live. See, that's our hope for you. We want everybody to live. That's what Easter's about. This last week, Cindy and I were in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, we were touring that historic town. And, uh, you know, I love the deep south. The food is just so good, y'all. And the tea is sweet. You don't even have to tell them. This, you order tea, they just bring it to you sweet. That's just how it is. And uh, it's a little taste of heaven, if you will. But Savannah is, is the original, the, the first planned city in America. Um, James Oglethorpe established that colony, Georgia. And it's interesting when you go to Savannah, right in the middle of Savannah, there's a statue to John Wesley. Now, John Wesley was this incredible preacher in the 18th century. He only spent right at two years in America. And what happened was in 1735, Oglethorpe invited John Wesley to come to Savannah and actually lead the church. Christ's church had been established there. Wesley is, was a preacher, theologian in the Anglican church in England. And so Oglethorpe invited him over and he came and he brought his brother with him. Brothers named Charles. These two boys had graduated from Oxford, both of them theologically astute, both preachers, evangelists. And so they came. Wesley, John Wesley stayed about two years. His brother Charles, not so long, about a year or so. And uh, so Charles went back home. But Charles Wesley, he wasn't just a preacher, an evangelist, he was a hymn writer. He wrote 6,500 hymns for the church in his lifetime. He wrote some great ones, things like Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And can it be this beautiful hymn, this wonderfully talented man. But when he got back home to England, 1739, he recognized that in his mind, they were getting ready for Easter Sunday, Easter Day as it was called. 
at the little church where he was working and he felt like there just wasn't a song to sing. Somebody needed to write a, a complete song for Easter Day. And so he wrote this one. It's in our hymnal. We sang it this morning in our 830 service. And it goes like this. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Earth and heaven join to say, hallelujah. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Hallelujah. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Hallelujah. Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids him rise. Christ hath opened paradise. Lives again, our glorious King. Where, O death, is now thy sting? Dying once, he all doth save. Where thy victory, O grave? Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. Well, today... We declare that powerful truth, fully throated and full of faith and hope because this is what we believe. Christ the Lord is risen today. Yes, we believe he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, today we, we bow before you humbly grateful. As Mark said earlier today, just hearts that are just full of gratitude. All that you've done for us, how you've made yourself known to us, and the fact that we can come together on Easter <laughs> and declare the truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and that that's not ancient news, it's fresh good news right now today. And so, Lord, if there be those within the sound of my voice that just have never really understood it, I ask you right now through your Holy Spirit to give them the insight, the wisdom, to understand just what it means to believe in Jesus and live. May they give their hearts to you today. Lord, those within the sound of my voice that perhaps it's just been a while since they've thought about it, reflected on the truth, meditated on it, maybe even strayed from it a bit. I pray that today will be a day of reckoning and that this day will be a day where true reflection, meditation, thought will be given to what it means that Jesus, your son, is our savior. And I pray that it'll draw us all close to him. And I pray also, Lord, that we as a church will be faithful to live as Easter people in a culture that needs desperately to know the truth. May you use us to live as Easter people. May it be so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.